Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And uh, for those of you who pay attention to my background, uh, I'm in Maine now instead of South Carolina. Made the trip the last couple of days. So I'm back here in the cold country. And I want to welcome everyone to the show. Our guest tonight, Richard Rokeby from the UK. And uh, I love these old UFO stories. And, you know, we think of the modern UFO era as 1947 forward. Uh, this one in particular that he's going to be talking about happened back in 1923. And all those old UFO sightings are pretty interesting to me, going back to the ghost ships of the 19th century and, you know, many, uh, many years uh, logged in, you know, I guess hundreds of years, we would say, logged in different ways. As a matter of fact, uh, somewhere on my desktop, I have a uh, 1700th, uh, 18th century account. I'm just seeing if I have it here that I could just pop that up because they're all fascinating to me, the uh, historic events. And here it is right here. I've uh, talked about this before. Uh, this is called the uh, Simeon Perkins Diary, and it's 1796, and anyone can find it online. So the, you know, the early accounts of UFOs, uh, this was a ship that was in the sky with a, a, a light shining down, uh, but uh, very interesting to me. Anyway, so that's that. Uh, I want to wish everyone Thanksgiving here in the U.S. We're coming up on that in just two days. It's my favorite. It happens to be my favorite holiday uh, just because it's uh, high-spirited. It's upbeat. We're thankful for things. And we, uh, we uh, I feel as though I have a lot to be thankful for, for sure. And uh, I uh, would have liked to have gone to the Soul Foundation event. The conference happened last uh, weekend. I'm going to have a guest coming up in a two weeks from today that actually did attend. And uh, I wish I had known about it. If I'd known about it ahead of time, I found out about it too late. Uh, but I definitely would have gone out there and look forward to going to of their uh, future ones. So our blog this week from Charles Lear is a 1970 UFO and occupant report from British Columbia, and then uh, explained with a question mark. So I do believe uh, Charles has uh, actually did a blog on this in the past. There's a commemorative coin that is being, uh, uh, I guess it's coming out this year. Yeah, 2023. They do these UFO coins. They did one for Shag Harbor up in Canada. And this one now is just uh, being released now and the Royal Canadian Mint. So anyway, uh, that was, uh, I thought that was interesting. And for right now, I'm bringing in my guests. I don't think I have anything else more to say. I do want to thank everyone uh, for uh, watching the show and listening to the podcast and, uh, have a great Thanksgiving if you're in the U.S. If you're not in the U.S., you can still celebrate it if you choose, right? All right, here we go. Welcome, Richard. Hello, Martin. Hello. So thanks for staying up late. <laughs> it's That's like okay. midnight. I, I do appreciate it. So, so Richard, it's something I kind of usually ask about almost every guest that I have on. You're, this is the first time you've been on this show, and uh, I saw you. I, uh, read little uh, bits and pieces of your book I thought was interesting about all the different colored lights that people were saying, things like that. But um, what sparked your interest in this topic to begin with? I know you were a past uh, police officer and you were also a military in security as well, right? Yeah, so I, I, was, in the, um, I was in the Army for about six years. Uh, and then after the Army, I joined the police. I was in the police for about 28 years. Um, and predominantly as a detective and I worked at all sorts of different areas, missing persons, uh, homicide, um, safeguarding, uh, investigation, and investigation of exploitation of children, which is pretty grim at times. But um, oh, okay. yeah, so I had, a, I, had a, I had a full and generally rewarding career. Um, but I did start, uh, my interest in UFOs started when I was very young, so child of the 70s. Um, and I grew up, I suppose, with the culture at the time, which was Star Wars and Close Encounters and E.T. And uh, that always held a fascination for me, especially Close Encounters, which seemed to have a ring of truth to it even back then. 
Um, and that got me into wanting to read a bit more. So back in the day, you would walk into a library and get what few books there is on UFOs, and I would read them. And I sort of kept that interest, but it, it did start to fade once I got into a working life and um, uh, into my professional life. But I always watched the occasional program and kept abreast of developments. And then, of course, in... Uh, 2017, we had the Tic Tac and the uh, those sort of sightings, uh, and that you know really sparked it all off again, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story which I've written the book about, um, so probably with me for about 20 years. I I first discovered it when I moved from London to Warwickshire, and um, my wife's from Warwickshire. I didn't really know the area that well. So I picked up some local history books and a ghost book. Um, and within the ghost book, there was one chapter, which was called The Lights on Burton Dasset Hills. And the other chapters were all your traditional ghost books of grey ladies and um, headless horsemen and <laughs> devil dogs and them sort of things. But the the Lights Upon the Hills chapter was very different. And it talks about floating lights seen upon Burton Dasset, and I'll describe Burton, Burton Dasset uh, in a minute. Um, but it described them as a law attributed to ghosts because of the time that they were seen, 1923, big time for spiritualism, just after the First World War, just after the Spanish flu pandemic, you know, mm. um, spiritualism was, it was at its height. So a lot of lights that were seen in that time period were attributed to ghosts. Um, yeah. Isn't that something? So they, they actually thought they were ghosts to begin with. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, 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 they were attributed a lot to ghosts. So it started off with reports from locals saying that they'd seen lights and it was a fairly tight period, um, generally between February, uh, sorry, uh, November 1922 to mid-February 1923. Um, and certainly by the beginning of February, the reports had reached a bit of a fever pitch, the local reports, the local newspapers were going there, uh, and then national and uh, metropolitan newspapers were going there, so from London and Birmingham, uh, sending up reporters to see see these lights. And in on a number of occasions, the reporters did did see them, but the locals would attribute the lights to ghosts, and they're described as small white lights, but sometimes bluish, sometimes reddish, moving along the hills. And um, like I say, at that time, a lot of phenomena was attributed to ghosts because of the rise in spiritualism, um after those two sort of global events really right now so were these ever so these were actually part of the hillside are you saying or just over towards some hills so were they ever like noticed in the air itself yeah so um well it's probably useful if i just put it into context so so where where this area is in warwickshire where i live um, it's very much rolling countryside and hills. So I describe it um, for your international listeners uh, a bit like um, Lord of the Rings, the, the Shire. You know, it's very green, very rolling, very beautiful in parts. Uh, but generally, it's hills rather than mountains and, and steep climbs. But in the western side of the county, is Burton Dasset Hills, and they're a collection of five hills that that uh, rise up. So they're significantly taller than those around it, but they're still uh, not that tall in, in comparison to the Lake District or um, uh, the Scottish mountains, etc. But they're about two, uh, 290 metres, uh, and there's five of them. And they're very tightly compact and it's completely flat around it so they are very prominent with within uh, Warwickshire uh, and um, people so the bit of a history about the place it it did have a village there 
Um, there was a there's a church there, which is sort of really key to my story. And the the Saxon nave, so the the early bit of the church, was described in the Doomsday Book of 1087, I think it was the Doomsday Book, um, and that listed everything that was that was sort of within the country. Um, and uh, yes, oh, that's great, that's fantastic. <laughs> yes, um, yep. for the visual part, um, and I will link this into the show notes. I'm just uh, pulling up some images. And yeah. uh, and then uh, of the area, and you can see very prominent hills. You know, for some reason, I was expecting some type of forest, but it's all like open hills. It, it appears yeah, well, yes. Yeah, so there is there is a small uh, um, wood at the back of the hills called Fox Covert Wood, um, which again I'll come on to later on, but has its own sort of interesting there. But um, yeah, so the. the what you can see there is is the the windmill there, there is sort of um five prominent hills uh so we've got beacon hill windmill hill and magpie hill at the front and then at the back there is um heart hill and church hill and and they they form you know three at the front two at the back it, to me it's it always reminds me of the orion and um constellation with the three belts with the, the three stars for the belts and then uh two at the back so it, it it's it's a very prominent and unusual area for warwickshire which is generally rolling rolling countryside mm -hmm. um but uh, yeah to go back to your original point so so people were so there was there was a village there and then the black death uh, put pay to the village, but the church still remained. But since then, it was generally used for um, uh, gathering points, and it was sometimes used for hangings. And it was no, it was known as a notorious area uh, for um, thieves. If you were to pass through it um, late at night, this is the sort of uh, you know fifteenth, sixteenth century. But the, the, I suppose the one bit that stood out is in the 14th century um the church which is called all saints church which i think you saw a picture of there that got a big influx of money and it was more or less uh redesigned and made a lot bigger so it became known as the cathedral in the cotswolds the cotswolds is the sort of area that warwickshire and oxfordshire and is a sort of area of outstanding natural beauty so the church was known as the cathedral in the cotswolds and it was given this uplift and there's various different reasons or different theories put forward as to why that was but the area itself was vacated and then by the time we get to the um earlier early 20th century uh, so just after the war uh, yes that's burton dasset uh, church there um it was um, just really a recreational area other than people going to the church. So what you can see there, and, and this discussed the heart of the, um, the story, is with inside the church, there is these fantastic carvings and pictures um, that were painted on the church, which date from around the 14th century. So the wow. pictures you can see there are, are just above the nave, and you think we've got St. Michael on the right and the Virgin Mary on the left. Mm. Um, and very often you can see that the walls are whitewashed there. Yeah. Um, so most churches were decorated up until the 17th century and um, the English Civil War and, and when the parliamentarians and the, the purists took over. And then they decided to whitewash all the walls and they went back to a different way of, of worshipping. Um, but uh, some were even destroyed, but uh, these paintings were kept and weren't whitewashed over either. So that's also significant. And then the pictures you've got there, they're the carvings uh, around the north side pillars. So in a, in a church, uh, traditionally, the north side is viewed as the evil side. So if you get gargoyles and, and things like this on a church, mm. it's generally on the northern side. And these um, carvings, which are, are quite unique for any church, really, 
are on this northern side which faces the Burton Dassent Hills. So if if we just stop it there, Martin. Um so if we go up a bit on the bottom left, there's a really interesting carving there. Uh which I can you can just see there's a very bottom picture. Uh this way? Uh that yeah. way stop. <laughs> oh hey. uh down a bit. <laughs> just down one down one picture. Oh the other way then, up a bit. Well, there was a there's a there's a picture. Well, that's quite unusual one as well. It, it, and there's these half lizard, half men type creatures. Mm. Um, the ones you can see on the right are, are is a cheetah and what looks to be like a griffin type animal, which are sort of fighting in the end. And cheetahs uh, were used in Christianity um, a lot. And just what you can see there, the the left hand side picture is Burton Dasset. Dasset means. Um, place of the hunt so it's likely to be um people, uh, animals that were being hunted in the area but um hmm. th th what th what is unusual about the carvings is that a couple of the carvings are upside down so huh. they've been carved as if they're floating in the air huh. i don't i don't think you can see them in that but uh i'd like to say you can see them in my book oh there you are so bottom left uh if you, if you go up a bit uh, up a bit more so the, the bottom the bottom left picture there um it shows two animals that instead of instead of their feet being as you'd expect on the floor they're actually up in the air uh, which hmm. is really un, really unusual and then the other element the other picture there which just come into the screen on the left hand side so that's the green man um symbol so it's it's a man that um that uh, is traditionally associated with pagan uh, beliefs, wow. um, but it, in in churches, it's often um, depicted to represent the joining together of two worlds. So, in churches, it's generally the Christian Christian world and the pagan world joining together. Because it's no secret in in England and in lots of countries that the the Christian Church adopted. A number of different festivals and sort of turn them to their own advantage if you like um but i also think it's interesting actually the because of the the paintings there and the other depictions are they literally talking about the joining of two worlds mm. um and uh, you know so yeah so the, the green man uh carving now i think is very interesting and all the cat you can see you know that was a fantastic picture uh, set of pictures mine to bring up that was really good and uh you can see how beautiful they are again 14th century and they all sort of appeared the paintings and the carvings appeared when the church got this uplift of money um yeah. which is probably came from the knights templar so the first website you're on there was by uh, it was a writer called graham phillips and he's researched the area and uh, he sets out in his in his book that in, in a book that he's written that the um, uh, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and possibly the Holy Grail were moved from Jordan, where there was a local Knights Templar detachment, moved back to a place called Temple Hedwick, which is a village which is di directly opposite Burton Dasset. Uh, hills and the the templars set up there and uh, graham phillips wrote a book about the 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 templars there um, moved some of the commandments and the holy grail around warwickshire and left clues as to where that was which is a fantastic story i'm not sure how true it is but it's a fantastic story but he he would say um that the depictions uh, which we sort of got a look at there. So as well as uh, the Virgin Mary and St. Michael, on the north side of the church as well, there is depictions of two kings. And uh, one king is holding a head, um, which we think is probably his own head, even though he has one. And the other one is of of a, a, a king that is holding, inverted commas, holding a a cup or a chalice and yeah, we, we have there, right yeah that yeah. we got there yeah so so that picture in the middle there so the the chap 
holding his he- holding his own head is likely to be um, uh, uh, King Ethelred, later Saint Ethelred, who was beheaded at a uh, at Hereford Cathedral in the year, uh, I think it was about six nine three, and he is a he is a martyr. Um, the 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 king that you can see there holding the holding the globe. What the church would say is that that is one of the magi, one of the three wise men that was producing that were the, that brought the gifts to Jesus when he was born. But it it there is no other sort of context for that other than that's what the Christian church uh, believe because he is holding this this um, bottle type uh, object. I think what Mr. Graham Phillips would say is he believes that is a depiction of the um, Holy Grail. Uh, what I would say, <laughs> and you can't quite make it out, but uh, I'd, I'll give more details about it in the book, is if you look very carefully at that picture, you will see that the orb isn't on the king's hand. It's actually floating about two inches above it. So what is being depicted there is a king of some sort with a with an orb floating above his hand. And the whether through natural erosion or otherwise, um, it's been scraped away, but you can make out where the hand ends and the bottom of the orb starts. Now, when you look at a context of everything else that's happened in Burton Dasset, then you know I would hypothesize that that is depicting perhaps another event that happened back in the past. So although the, the paintings were from the 14th century, they're actually depicting depicting events of the 6th and 7th century. So mm-hmm. were they depicting a local king that saw one of these orbs and wanted to claim it of his own and you know get, get the kudos from it? Um, I don't know. But um, I just think when you look at the context of everything else around Burton Dasset, I do think the carvings, the animals being upside down, the the green man being carved in there. There's actually another picture which um, on the other side of, of Burton of the of the of the church, where it looks like an oval shaped, um, well, it's an oval shaped like a rugby ball or an, uh, an American football shaped ball uh, on the on the wall next to what looks to be like a fish, and you know again it's it's a really strange. It looks like an oval craft an oval uh egg-shaped craft and it and it again it's pretty randomly just placed there so i think as as in any investigation if you like it's a jigsaw and you've got to put all the bits together to mm-hmm. to, to to give a story and account of what's gone on um, well so, i've looked i've looked for that particular carving that i mean uh painting you're talking about it's, it's not actually on that particular website but but it's all very interesting. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of history, first of all, that you have a lot of human history. Well, it's really, you know, you're going back to, I heard you say the, uh, the seventh century or whatever along there, which is really not a lot of time when it comes to, you know, the development of, of the species and all that, but still for us to look back, that's, that is a long time, especially, um, since you know we're we don't have any historic buildings like that in this country going back that far, so yeah, it's very, very fascinating. Um, and were the were any of the lights uh, that were seen were they seen near this church? Yeah. So the 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 first accounts um, started with a, a local dairy farmer, and he he said he saw the lights. At, um, emanating from the church and he he was he was known as a local character but he was it was said and he he gave his accounts to the to the local papers banbury gazette um banbury is a as a a town probably maybe 10 miles south going towards oxford uh and the banbury gazette in the early 20th century they they were the first really real local paper to pick up on these accounts and the Bambi Gazette got a lot of accounts and he, this um, uh, dairy farmer was one of the first ones to come forward and said that he'd seen lights around the church. 
he is one of the only couple that have seen them come from the church. A few other people said that they saw the lights heading in the direction of the church. Um, but yeah, they, they were seen in that area. And they, they were seen, if you imagine the sort of Burton Dasset Park, it's maybe only, you know, a square, a square mile, a mile by a mile. It's not very big at all. So it all, all the sightings were in a very, very tight area. Um, with one, perhaps one exception, which was maybe about half a mile away, which was over near um, a railway signalman gave an account of, which is one of my favourite accounts, actually, where he saw an orange orb, but a bit, quite big, this one, you know, maybe the size of a small car, which just floated down in front of his observation platform. And he rang the police about that. So, but but, but generally... All the sightings of the of these different coloured orbs and lights were seen um, within that very very small area, including the church. I see. And uh, what type of investigating was done at that time? You know, what were what were people uh, trying? I'm sure people were trying to figure out what the heck was going on, right? Yeah. So the I mean, a law maybe maybe ten twelve. Uh, accounts were put into the papers, and I, and, I, and I do detail them in the book. It's, it was perhaps the lights were seen by hundred hundred odd people, which is why I explain it as one of the one of the very first mass UFO events, because um, people were going up from the villages nearby, North End um, Village and Fennec Compton, to see the lights, and coming back down saying, "Yeah, we've we've seen these lights." Once that started to get a bit of traction, then and the Banbury Gazette had been in, they'd sent up um, a reporter to have a look to see what they could see. Uh, and then um, the Birmingham uh, Times sent reporters up, and there's a really good account of a, a reporter who um, has been waiting sort of all day to go up to the hills, they're waiting for, like, just to start to fade a bit and they go up the hills and they start walking around and he he doesn't really see anything and he, he thinks it's all uh, a bit of uh, mumbo jumbo and he stands on windmill hill looking out before heading back down and he describes how two lights drop down from the cloud cover and illuminate the cloud base and then move yeah. at speed over him uh you know past him in into the area of of Burton Dasset. Um, so, yeah, so the, I think most of the investigation was done really by the local papers. There was no scientific investigation. And I think it goes back to your earlier point, Martin, about the them being uh, um, mentioned as ghosts. They were celebrated as ghosts because at that time people wanted to believe there was an afterlife, having lost their sons in World War One. Oh yeah, um, perhaps you know, not necessarily. Too. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they needed they needed to believe. So it was they were celebrated that these sightings were happening because it it added to the story. It added to the uh, corroborated their beliefs in in spiritualism. So they were quite happy to call them ghosts, and nobody really wanted to go too far to disprove it. Plenty of people went up there and witnessed them. So, uh, yeah. So that so no one went out of their way. There was one report. So um, the Times of London, they sent a reporter who was very very keen to uh, to blame uh, all these lights that have been seen at various times, days and night, various altitudes, moving at speed. They rolled out. Well, it's probably swamp gas. Um, you know, yeah. the, the old ufologist nemesis, swamp, yeah. swamp gas. Um, and that was based on, on one. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was saying, I don't think there's too many swamps on a hill. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, well, yeah, but I suppose in this country, it'd be marsh gas, but there's still not a lot of marsh anyway. You know, the, the, it, that was based on one account. There was a chap by the name of George Cottrell who was a, a, uh, a local groom, horse groom. And he was leading a horse down towards uh, North End Village, and he saw a what was described as a bluish light above a pond. 
uh, and it um, upset the horse. The horse started to uh, rear up, and they had to try and control the horse. But he he did give that account to one of the papers. and said he'd seen this bluish light move move up and around the pond. So, you know, a couple of things about marsh gas. One, it's got to be wet. So, yeah, you've, you've got to have a pond or marsh. But the other thing is it's got to be hot. And February in Warwickshire is not hot. Um, <laughs> so, and, and you know, a lot of studies have been done around marsh gas. You know, it, it's definitely a phenomenon that exists. But it's generally two or three second burst of, of light, of flame, that moves perhaps four or five metres and then will burn itself out. It's... It's not what was being described here of, of, of lights moving at pace. Uh, and sometimes even search as if they're searching the, an area. Uh, one account describes how uh, a white light went past uh, a house and it was uh, strong enough to illuminate the house so you could read by it. You know, these are, you know, hmm. these objects. Are, one, I would say, are under intelligent control. And two, you know, have capabilities uh, such as the amount of light they can produce and the speed they can travel. That 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 would suggest that um, they they were extraterrestrial, uh, extra dimensional, you know, ultra terrestrial in, in origin, I guess. Yeah, yeah, or just some type of. It is kind of a strange. If it's some type of natural phenomenon, uh, you know, it would seem like it would continue on, you know, through when's the last time that somebody has actually seen something similar to that? Was it 23 back in was 1923, the end of it? Well, no. So going back to Graham Phillips again, he whilst he carried out his investigation, he he wasn't in the Burton Dasset area. He wasn't too far away. And he. Uh, says that uh, he was directed to a site by a blue light uh, in a wood, which led him to where he found um, one of the uh, tablets uh, of the Ten Commandments. He thinks he thinks it is all very general, but he certainly gives an account of seeing a blue light in some woods, probably maybe eight or nine miles away from that area. Mm. Um, so not not too far away. The actual lights themselves haven't really been reported since 1923. Um, there has been a photograph of a craft by, which was taken in 1996, or a small dot, we call it a tic-tac now or something like that, which was seen travelling across the sky from the from the hill. That, that picture is, is on the internet uh, somewhere. But, um, no, it, 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 does, it does seem to have been very, very localised in terms of area and in terms of time period. Um, I mean, there is other strange things happening, which are, you know, some experiences that have happened to me whilst I've been researching the book, which I, which I have detailed, suggests that there is something going on there still. But um, what, what that is, uh, you know, n nobody knows. But And it tends not to take the form of, of, of lights, it, it, you know, my experiences are government types in that area, um, audible encounters or hearing noises like a huge machine um, or rotary engine, which takes over the whole park. Um, there is a there is a witch's circle there in Fox Covert Wood, which is looks to be used by Wicca or pagan uh, sects. So, yeah, so it's still a very interesting area, but we are missing, I'll be honest, we are missing these lights. Despite having lots of contacts there and visiting the area regularly, uh, the, the lights haven't really been reported again. Wow. Yeah, it so sounds like a very interesting, very interesting area indeed. And how how far away are you and you're in Warwickshire? Is that is that? Is that right? Warwickshire, yeah. Yes, yeah. And how far away are you from this particular site? Oh, no, it's a half and 30 minute drive. Mm. Uh, it's not far, 10, 15 miles. Uh, so it is It is on my doorstep, really. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, certainly when I was, so the, the, the original, my book is an updated version. Uh, the original book, which was meant to be an article, 
came out in 2020, but it was just enough uh, to give a book. So we, we published a book with Flying Disc uh, Press. So I started going to the area quite regularly at that time. Uh, and then the, the book I've released now is an updated, expanded version, uh, which I've, I've um, published on, on Amazon um with more pictures and more accounts so i over two periods i suppose you know i've been going there off, off and on quite regularly for about three four years now and how how many witnesses would you say that you were able to uncover well for the, the from the original accounts i would say there's about eight or nine accounts uh probably more actually if you include the reporters so there was local people we mentioned the um mentioned already the uh, local dairy farmer who sort of first saw the, account, uh, the accounts uh, than the groom who saw the blue light next to the pool. But there was a um, three local dignitaries, a chap called George White, who with two friends said he was going to go up and uh, dispel this uh, sort of hysteria that had taken over about these lights in the hills. And he gives a really good account to the paper because he says he saw the lights and then he says he felt them go over him. And I, and I think that word was really key, he felt them go over him. And that suggests some sort of downward pressure, perhaps some sort of electrostatic effect with mm. the atmosphere, with the environment. And it just makes it all the more tangible. Uh, so that's a really uh, good account. Uh, then we then have a maid from the vicarage um, who we managed to get um, some more details from in the uh, from the updated book. And she describes how she saw the lights uh, going across the hill. And and very, like like a lot of people report this, they weren't scared by it at all. It, they, they enjoyed it. They quite welcomed it. There was no with all the accounts, there was no menace around this. It was it was a welcoming mm um light a positive experience um but we've since discovered that uh, not only did she see them going across undulating across the hills but uh, she went to the back of the house uh the vicarage that she worked in and the lights reappeared and were sort of playing hide and seek with her <laughs> and she could pop out the door and the lights would appear and then she'd pop back in again and disappear and the, as if they were sort of trying to communicate with her so that was really exciting when we got and that, that came from a, a distant uh, relative of, of, of that lady. So, um, yeah, there was, there was a railway man, like I said, that was a really interesting account um, uh, that, you know, somebody in that position in that time. So the other good thing I think about this, this story, Martin, is it's such an evocative age, steam trains and, uh, you know the uh, the beautiful costumes that people would wear in the 1920s, and mm -hmm. um, I, I I do think it you know and what the, the steam trains and which were absolutely pivotal pivotal to transport in the UK back then, and being a signalman was a very very responsible job, and uh, this signalman saw an orange light land in front of him in his um, observation box. Uh, and he took the decision to call the local train station. He said, well, you best report it to the police. Um, and now that could have ended his career and, you know, that, that could have been his livelihood gone. But he was so compelled to tell the story that he was willing to take that risk and, uh, and report it. And I think that's, that's amazing. There was a motorcyclist that gave an account of traveling around the country roads when a light started coming towards him which he originally thought was another motorcyclist, but then the light went over the top of him. And again, yeah. I think that's really interesting because that shows a degree of intelligence. You know, that, that yeah. light, whatever it, want, it was, didn't want to harm that person and went, yeah. went over the top of him. So, yeah, there, there, is, there is lots of lots of accounts there. But like I said, there was probably hundreds of people saw it, but not everyone made it into local press. Uh, you know, not everyone passed the story down through generations. Right. So, yeah, that's that's the way a lot of this gets preserved is through, you know, reporting and uh, not not so much uh, through family generational like that. Um, you know, that the, the, those type of stories aren't aren't put down on paper right when when it happened. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, the lines are open. If anyone would like to give a call, I do appreciate all the people uh, watching live here in the event, uh, watching this event alive. That is. 
And uh, you're also welcome to post questions in the chat. Just please use all all caps if you would. So uh, let's let's shift gears a little bit. And if anyone wants to talk, uh, call and talk about the, these particular lights and uh, the ghost lights and all that, uh, they're welcome to. But uh, when we were talking offline, you mentioned that you've also done a little bit of investigation into the triangles that have been seen. And I'd like to know a little bit more of the details on that, if I could. Yeah, so that was, so where I live in the Midlands um, of, of England, um, there was a there was a chap called Colin Saunders who had oh, yes. no interest. Have you, have you heard of him? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's some reason I know that name, yes. Yeah, so he he had no interest in UFOs or anything like that uh, up until um he had an encounter but he, he was sort of the perfect person to have this encounter uh and he was a sort of an engineer a, a, a draftsman by trade he, he worked with um aeronautical designs etc and i think about 1997 he um saw a triangular craft about it's maybe about 10 12 miles away from where i am now and he, he'd come out of a pub um, called The White Lion, had his family with him, and he'd seen a, seen a craft at a, a rather obscure angle just materialise in front of a massive craft. And it, it's fair to say he changed his, changed his life. And um, he was an extremely credible witness, and he couldn't get this, what he'd seen, out of his head. So he, he designed a model that made it uh, so he could you know, oh, have yes. something tangible. That yes. you've seen, yes, um, he was actually on. He was on my show. That's yes, why I yeah. knew the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, his model as well. Uh, I remember. Yes, yes, that's right. The model. Um, yeah. I've seen him speak. He's very, very credible. Very, very credible. Intelligent guy. Um, but it, because it was so close to where uh, I lived, um, and within his talks, he details around about six or seven sightings of similar craft these triangular craft in in the area and and they're they're in a sort of um cross type shape an hourglass type shape centered on sort of sharnford and a place called hinkley uh which is a sort of market town round about 15 miles away 20 miles away um so we did i did a bit of research into that just going around the sites um this these these uh, triangular craft seem to gravitate towards power supplies um the pylons uh anywhere where there's lots of energy gas storage places etc uh, i just found it really interesting and again because it was on my doorstep i thought we would go down so i've spent a few nights in those areas just seen and I actually used to work in in that around that area as well so and if i was on nights I would have a look around to see if I can see anything. Having, I've never seen one, but I just uh, think it is a fascinating story because the level of detail Colin gives in his books and in his models, you know, you, you just know that there is a lot of credit, credibility um, to it. And, right. um, yeah, so we, we had to look around the area, see if we could see anything, see if we can get any other accounts. But there is round about six or seven accounts starting from around 1997 up to about 2012 uh, and they do seem to be doing this crisscross sort of area a uh, crisscross sort of pattern of materializing generally they materialize people don't tend to see them traveling over long distances they tend to materialize and then disappear at speed um so we thought that was i thought that was that was really interesting and it, and again is, is that ufo is that terrestrial you know it's difficult difficult to see but the, the the triangular craft do seem to be something of their own you know they do seem yeah. to have uh, a very very they're sort of a specialist niche within uh, ufology i think and, and very different to anything yeah. else people see there there's uh there's some people that are absolutely convinced <clears throat> that the triangles are all, uh, you know, man, uh, you know, secret tech that, that's out there. Um, however, you know, there's accounts of them that go back so far that 
you know, I mean, I personally have a, a friend who saw one in 19, I think it was 78, um, mm. you know, right over her car and, uh, you know, got, she got out of the car too. And the thing was just right above their car, uh, and big, huge black triangle and just shot off, you know, uh, afterwards. And I had her, uh, talk about her account quickly on the show one time, but, uh, so, but I, I disagree. I think that, you know, it's possible that there is some, you know, military, secret military craft triangle that can do, you know, these things now uh, or maybe in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years or something like that, but not way back, you know, uh, and, yeah. and, you know, and maybe what we're seeing is a mixture of things too, you know, uh, possibly some military mixed in there with it all. Yeah. I mean, I think again, with, Colin Saunders account, he, he says it's, it materializes out of thin air and it's huge, it's massive. Um, and you can see all the ripples on the top um, of these sort of vents that, that run alongside it. I mean, that that would, you'd have to say that would, if, if anything, that's going to be extra, extraterrestrial, interdimensional. I do think some of the sightings of triangular craft, and, and not necessarily your friend Martin, but I do think some of them probably date back to the stealth uh, era when they were researching that and oh, yeah. if you've ever seen a b2 bomber um you know it, it when if you look at it side on it looks like a ufo you know with the um with it, although it's a, a sort of bat wing type shape side on it it looks like the traditional ufo with a bulb at the top and a, and a bulge at the bottom and I, I do think some sightings were around uh that were, were credited to ufos or triangular craft were probably stealth stealth bombers in their very very early days, uh, but uh, you know who who knows what what they are doing now. But being being able to materialize cloaking devices, I think we're probably some some way off that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to uh, going back to your uh, the case that you you've been writing on, um, where there someone wanted to ask uh, someone asked in the chat were. There are other writings besides the newspapers. Like, did it go into you? You said there was some. There was quite a bit of attention, and just how widespread were people writing about this? Do you do you know? Yes. Well, I'd, I'd say that the national papers sent people up. Um, national papers sent people up from all the way around the country, Birmingham and uh, London, uh, and it was it was described as a flap at the time. Because people mm -hmm. were hearing about it, people were traveling far and wide to go up onto the hills and see if they could if they could see them. So yes, it it, it was widespread in, in as much as it reached the whole country, um, and people were traveling traveling in. It tended to be the papers that reported it. Uh, some of the accounts uh, I got from Betty Smith's uh, Ghost of Warwickshire book. Uh, others were just from uh, local newsletters etc but um just just going on to the um the, we mentioned about uh, the aircraft there in 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 the books the lights upon the hills which i've released one, one of the um hypotheses i gave is that these lights are intelligent uh, life forms and i've detailed an account in there which has, has never ever been published before from a commercial airline pilot and he had a series of accounts a series of encounters um, with very similar green uh, lights, and um, one one of which the counter seemed to lead to him coexisting with the light. So it's it's an absolutely fascinating story that I've detailed in the book because I do think it shows evidence of what intelligent light forms uh, could could be doing and what they're capable of and. I, I my, my conclusions to it all is it, th these lights that were seen were either probes that were, were sent from perhaps um, other civilizations to check out the area, maybe brought brought there because of the iron ore, or there were intelligence light forms which were sort of recharging again, perhaps uh, off the off the unique sort of structure, the iron structure there, the magnetic structure. Um, so yeah, so I, I, the the book goes into that intelligence life forms, like I said, the witches' covens that are there, and my own encounters 
up there where there seem to be military vehicles um, and and people in blacked out Range Rovers patrolling the area very very late at night, sort of for mm. reasons unknown. So the, there there is a lot lot to it that's happened since 1923. Hence, uh, I updated the book. Really, wow, that sounds great. I going to be getting that book myself so this is uh really good we have just a couple minutes left here but um so that all that information will be on uh in the show notes including your book and all that and uh sounds fascinating and i would say that your probably your detective background probably helps you quite a bit when you're doing this type of research i would imagine yeah, I mean, I mean, being a detective, being a police officer, it's you know, ninety percent of it is communication, talking to people. So that that always helps getting mm -hmm. people to to talk to you and uh, questioning skills, in interviewing skills, perhaps without them knowing they're being interviewed, is quite useful as well. Uh, recording, detailing the information, analyzing that next bit of evidence, and then looking at where does that take you next? What are the actions? We tend to work in in uh, actions um, within the police, com completing those actions, get the evidence in, evaluate it, and then what new actions fall out of that. And certainly that's how I've approached it in the book. But um, I was keen to have it entertaining. I didn't want it to come across like an academic um, uh, paper or it, it to be too procedural. So I think I've got a nice balance in the book with, with detailing the uh, the the evidence that's been put forward, along with some of the background and some of the stories, and really capture the characters that were involved. Very good. Well, thank you so much, and I do appreciate you staying up late for us. That's okay. Thank you, Martin, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to everybody in the states there. And uh, thank you ever so much for listening. All right. Okay. You take care. All right, everyone. So uh, I will be back. What had happened here? Let's see. Let me get myself back here. Here we go. Uh, so I will be back next week with Adam Frank. And uh, again, all you uh, people out there have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And we'll see you next week. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky.